get started. Uh, welcome to Kabbalah Cafe. This is a special Hanukkah edition, and today's class has a very special dedication. Um, and I want to, uh, first of all, acknowledge the dedication, and uh, and of course uh, um, mention the uh, the specific honor that it is for. So, number one, thank you to Dr. Joy Maxey for sponsoring today's uh, session of Kabbalah Cafe. Um, in loving memory of her dear friend Jerry Shana Devora Rosenblum Carr, whose yard site is the 30th day of Kislev, which is coming, well, this year is, uh, there's no 30th of Kislev. Some years there is, some years there isn't, but it, it is this week, one way or another. And um, indeed, may her memory, uh, Dr. Jerry Rosenblum Carr, may her memory be for a blessing, and may she, uh, uh, she advocate on high for only blessings for her loved ones and her dear friend, of course, Dr. Maxi below. Um, and indeed, soon may we be reunited with all of our loved ones who, have, who we loved and lost. And, uh, and with the coming of Mashiach, may be speedily in our days and let us say, Amen. Amen. So we're going to, uh, just to be clear, I wrote a special Hanukkah edition. We are going to still be studying our text, but I want to connect it with Hanukkah because, of course, that is the holiday that we're celebrating. And that, that's, I think, in everyone's minds. And it is a very timely conversation. So we find something very unique about Hanukkah. And what we find about Hanukkah that's unique is that there is a major piece of the holiday or of the historical events that doesn't seem to get a lot of airtime. And what I'm referring to is the military victory. Now, if you think about it, you know, think about what's going on in Israel right now. And imagine... You know, imagine if Israel is able to, I mean, not imagine, right? Please God, Israel will defeat terrorism and do what it needs to do. But imagine if after all of that is gone, right? After all terrorism and Hamas, after all of that is gone. Imagine if, you know, uh, the, the Israelis, right? Or the soldiers, whatever. Imagine if they would come back to, I'm trying to think of a scenario that would parallel. They came back to Israel. And they, they were having, uh, let's say, a party in a certain venue. And for whatever reason, the lights were out. And they couldn't, there was no power. But somehow, they were able to get power to the building. And miraculously, the lights went on. And imagine if the entire scope of that experience was focused on the miracle of the light. It would seem, it would seem profoundly bizarre. Why are we celebrating the miracle of the light? It's the military victory that was the Ikar. How do you translate Ikar? The primary thing. It's like we're making the Tafel Ikar and the Ikar Tafel. We're making the primary secondary and the secondary primary. Everyone knows. You ask, you ask little kids even. You ask a child or an adult, why do we celebrate Hanukkah? And inevitably they'll say, oh, because when they, fa- they were trying to light the menorah and they only had one flask of oil, uh, that would last for one day, it lasted for eight days, and so we, that's it. What about the Greeks? I mean, I guess we talk about it also, but where's the commemoration? What are we doing for that? And I'll tell you, it filters down into halakha, into practical Jewish law. I'll ask you a question. Is there a mitzvah? It's not a trick question. It's a straight-up halakha question. Is there a mitzvah to have a su'uda, a feast, on Hanukkah? I'm not asking, do we go to Hanukkah parties? I'm not asking, do we or do we not gorge on, 
you know, oily stuff, latkes and dough. I'm not asking that. What I'm asking is, is it a mitzvah to have a sit-down, a suda, a meal on Hanukkah? The answer is no. You know when it is a mitzvah? Every other holiday. It's a mitzvah on Rosh Hashanah. Okay, sorry, not Yom Kippur. But there's a mitzvah. Huh? Because they're mitzvahs. Good. So, okay. So Eva's saying that maybe it's because it's a rabbinic holiday. Oh, the counter argument is Purim. Purim is a rabbinic holiday, and yet we know on Purim. No, this is a good dialogue. This is like a perfect halakhic dialogue. So one, so one thought would be, well, it's rabbinic. But the counter argument is, well, Purim. You have four mitzvahs on Purim. Mikra Megillah, right? To hear the Megillah twice. We have gifts to the poor, uh, gifts of food to each other. And number four is a su'udat mitzvah. A meal, a feast. It's a mitzvah. It's called a su'udas mitzvah. A, a mitzvah feast. And yet, on Hanukkah, we don't find such a mitzvah. Now, I need to break this down. So there's a lot of questions. Question is, why not? Um, you know, I asked the question before, just so we're all keeping score here of the questions. They're all related, trust me. First question I asked is, where's the military victory? Why are we not, like, why is there no mention? What's going on with that? Question number one. Question number two, where's the feast? Like that old Wendy's commercial. Where's the beef? Right? Where's the beef? Right? Wendy's. Who would have thought? A nice Jewish girl. So, so you have... Um, so you have these two questions. Let's go further. The Rambam, Rambam, Maimonides, writes that it is a mitzvah to have a suda, to have a feast on Hanukkah. And yet, most of the poskim, most of the halachic authorities, including the final decision in the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, side against Maimonides. And the question is, what is going on? Why does Rambam say that you should have a feast? That it is a mitzvah to have a, a, a festive meal on Hanukkah. It's not just a good thing to do, but an actual obligation. <coughs> Whereas most majority, the majority of the poskim, the Rush, the Rif, others, great uh, contemporaries of Rambam and great halakhic authorities, they do not believe that that is the case. And, and indeed, that's the final halakha. So in order to break this down, I want to share with you a piece of the Talmud, of Gemara. And yes, we will get back to Kabbalah very soon. But we're starting off with the Gemara, with the Talmud. So let's pass this around. Take one down, pass it around. Oh, oh. so one answer could be, or, or, or an observation is, well, one second. If it is a mitzvah, if, if it is, um, yeah, a mitzvah to have a sudas mitzvah, to have a feast, so then... Um, when would you do it? Which day, one day, all days? That's a good question. We don't have to worry about that because we don't have to. So, but the question is, why not? By the way, by the way, uh, Sudas Mitzvah is not only limited to holidays. Any time there's a mitzvah that includes the obligation of simcha, this is very important what I'm about to say. Any time you have a mitzvah that includes the obligation to have simcha, simcha is defined in halacha as basar v'yayin. As meat and wine. You don't have to have meat, but it's, it's, it's better to have meat, if, again, if you're a meat eater or whatever. So meat and wine is the definition of simcha and Judaism. What a great religion we have, right? Isn't that great? The definition of joy, how to experience joy, uh, right, is, is about food and, and beverage. It's amazing, right? 
But here's the point. You have this also by a simcha, by a wedding. The feast, right? The, the re- it's called reception, yeah? The feast after the, after the, what's it called again? After the ceremony is a mitzvah. It's a sudat mitzvah. It's a mitzvah feast. It's not just a feast. It's a mitzvah feast. By a brit milah, by a circumcision. It's, it's, um, it's a sudat mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to eat. It's not just nice, not just good to have a spread. It's a mitzvah. By the way, that's why some people, even in early morning bris, right, brit milah, circumcision, will serve fleshiks, meat. Why? Because it's a sudat mitzvah, and, and simcha and sudat mitzvah is defined as, ideally, as meat and wine. So they'll go, I've been to morning, uh, you know, bris, and they have fleshiks on the menu. I'm not going to tell you what I did for uh, for my kids. You know, I don't know. I don't remember if we did that. We may have just gone for the cream cheese schmear. But there's a thing. Some people do it. I don't remember either. <laughs> I remember sandwiches. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's a little bit. Yeah. It's usually in the morning. And it's a little bit. Not everyone is going to go for it. So anyway. So let's let's study some Talmud together. And I think we're going to get some clues. All right. I know we're going to get some clues from this. Here we go. So the Gemara asks, oh, let me put this up on the board, on the, uh, on the screen. One second, hold on. Hold on, stay with me. Here we go, here we go. Um, okay, thumbs up if you can see it. You got it? You guys see it? Yes? All right, thank you. Uh, my Hanukkah. Okay, so a, a quick word of uh, clarification. There is no tractate for Hanukkah in the Talmud. Every other holiday, including Purim, has a tractate. Rosh Hashanah is Rosh Hashanah. Yoma is for Yom Kippur. Sukkah is for Sukkot. Megillah is for Purim. Pesachim is for Pesach. Shavuot, there is no Masechta either, but the whole thing is Torah. And they're not going to call something Masechah's cheesecake, so that's Why out. Why did they leave yes. the Maccabees out of the Torah? Good. That's a, that's a good question. That's a good question also. Good. Okay, we're gonna get we're gonna get to all this stuff. All right, Gemara. Here we go. The Talmud asked the question: My Hanukkah, what is Hanukkah? Oh, I can read it on the screen. What is Hanukkah? Now, the the the, um, the Talmudic question is vague. It literally says, "My Hanukkah." What is Hanukkah? Now, <laughs> look. You know, lots of Jews are lawyers, and 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 Jews love breaking down things. It's part part of our culture. So when you ask a question, what is Hanukkah, one could ask on the question, what do you mean? What is Hanukkah? What, what is Hanukkah? What's your question? So now you have commentaries analyzing the opening two words of the Gemara, of the Talmud, my Hanukkah. Oh, I forgot to mention, there's no tractate for Hanukkah, but it is included in the conversation on uh, Shabbat, tractate Shabbat, which deals with, with lighting Shabbat candles. So there's a segue into Hanukkah. Fine, so let's go into this. My, tractate. Oh, it's like a book, a volume. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, it's, not, it's like it's like filling our phylacteries. Who, who uses that either? I don't know. It's like a, it's a book. Book that, that is organized by subject. Okay, so now, so the Gemara asked the question, the Talmud asked the question, what is Hanukkah? Now, in brackets, in brackets, I have one angle on the question, i.e., why are lights kindled on Hanukkah? 
Truth is, Rashi in his commentary on, on the Talmud has a bit, bit of a different angle. Rashi says the question, what is Hanukkah means? Why did they establish the holiday? Now, why do they like, why do we like ca- candles? But why was the entire holiday established? Okay. Let's continue. The sages taught, Miglatainit, the 25th of Kislev, the days of Hanukkah are eight. One may not eulogize on them and one may not fast on them. So again, 25th of Kislev uh, begins an eight-day holiday. No eulogies, no fasting. In other words, it is a holiday. But what's the reason? So somebody dies, eulogies? You, don't, you don't eulogize until after the holiday. Right? Oh, Dad, you told me you were at the... Uh... We were there this morning. No, no, but even last week they had a uh, shloshim. Right? Didn't you tell me that? In the JCC? Yeah. You know, for the, for, um, the uh, Rose um, Lubin, for Rose Lubin, they did the Shloshim community-wide on, on, a, on, a, on last Wednesday night. On the 29th. They didn't do it on the Shloshim. They did it the day before because once you hit Shloshim, it would be Hanukkah, and then you can't eulogize for eight days. So they did it before as opposed to pushing it up. Absolutely. I mean, the, the eulogy, the non-eulogy? Yeah. Okay, so we don't eulogize in them and we don't fasten them. What is the reason? What is the reason? So here we go. The Gemara continues. Here we go. We, know, we all know this story, but it's important to read this. And I'll tell you why. When the Greeks entered the sanctuary, they defiled all the oils that were in the sanctuary by, by touching them. Touching them. Okay. Um, yeah. And when the Hasmonean monarchy overcame them and emerged victorious over, I think by touching them is a commentary. I don't think that is in, I don't think, yeah, I don't think that's, yeah. Okay, and when the Hasmonean monarchy overcame them, good morning, good morning, and emerged victorious over them, they searched and found only one cruise of oil that was placed with the seal of the high priest, undisturbed by the Greeks, and there was sufficient oil there to light the candelabrum, the menorah, for only one day a miracle occurred, and they lit the candelabrum from it eight days, Right? So my joke is, it's not, sorry, it's not my joke. I've seen the meme. It's like, imagine you have a cell phone with 10% battery as you start the day, and it lasts the whole day. It's unbelievable. It's a miracle. Right? A little bit of oil lasted for eight days. The next year, the sages instituted those days and made them holidays with recitation of Hallel and special thanksgiving and prayer and blessings. Look at that last paragraph and tell me what you don't see. Again, I'm going to read it again. You know, you... you, you it's easy to gloss over the last paragraph. Oh, it's just kind of concluding it. It's like, blah, 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 holiday. Look carefully at what it says. The next year, the sages instituted those days and made them holidays with what? Recitation of hallow. That's the prayer that we had in the, in the prayer service, Thanksgiving. And special Thanksgiving in prayer and blessings. What does it not say? No suda. Doesn't refer to it as simcha. Simcha. It doesn't say you may simcha umishta, like it says umishta, like it says by Purim, days of joy and feasting. It doesn't say that. It says halal and hoda'a. Halal and hoda'a. Thanksgiving or um, uh, halal and, and thanksgiving. That's what it says. Which means that according to the Talmud, again, according to most commentaries, the Talmud is specifying that the holiday of Hanukkah is a, how do we frame it? A spiritual holiday, I don't know if we would call it spiritual, a prayerful Thanksgiving holiday, 
etc. But it does not refer to it as a time for simcha and feast, a joy and feasting. It does not say that. Therefore, most, the vast majority of the main three pillars of halacha, look, Jewish law that we have today is the product of a lot of dialogue and a lot of debate and ultimately a reconciliation of different opinions. Typically, we go by three major halachic opinions. Um, the Tor, um, the Rif, and the Rambam. And two out of three say, sounds like, a, like an ad for toothpaste. Two out of three doctors, two out of three dentists. So two out of three of these halachic authorities say that there is no, since the Talmud doesn't mention Simcha and Mishta, joy and feasting, therefore there is no obligation to um, have a feast. Now, um, we're certainly joyous, um, but it's not a, it's not a, it's, there's no mitzvah to have a feast. Again, we do it anyway, but it's not a, it's not an, uh, uh, an obligation. Now, Maimonides says, Rambam says, that it is a mitzvah to have a suda, a feast. So how does he explain the Gemara? The Talmud leaves it out. So how does he explain it? I'll share with you an insight. One, one angle on, on Maimonides' opinion is that the Talmud is not limiting Hanukkah to this. The Talmud is telling us, in addition to the obvious, here's another angle on Hanukkah, which answers our first question. And right now, what I'm saying is completely unclear. So let me break this down. Let me break this down. We have two aspects of Hanukkah. One is the military victory. And one is the miracle of the oil and the menorah, the lights. So we'll call it war and lights. We'll be very minimalistic here. War and lights. As I started off today's session, you would think, what should get the biggest play? The war. That was the whole thing, right? What was the history? The Syrian Greeks, known in Hebrew as the Ivanim, they came in. They came into Judea. They came into to Israel. They were not happy with these people, i.e. the Jewish people, observing, having other observances and pledging their allegiance to God as opposed to reason and, and other things and, and Hellenistic society. Um, the Jews repelled them a little bit. Then, they, got, then they, they, they enacted decrees against Judaism, including no circumcision, no Jewish calendar, uh, prohibitions against kosher. They came in ultimately and, and, and offered a pig on the altar, which you can imagine is a pretty big deal, Right? And all sorts of things, they were attacking Judaism as a religion, the Jewish way of life. And the Hashmanoim, the Maccabees, they fought back. Um, and, and it took a while, and there were many different battles and guerrilla warfare, etc. But ultimately, they repelled the Syrian Greeks and were able to reclaim the Beis Amidash, Jerusalem, the Temple, Jerusalem, etc. And that was, of course, a major deal. That's what we call the war. And then, as I said before, then you have the miracle with the lights. It's like, oh, we need to, part of the, now we have the temple, so part of the service is lighting the menorah. Oh, there's not enough oil. We only found one, jo- one, one flask, but it, le- it's, it lasted for eight days. That's also amazing. Again, that seems completely secondary to the primary, we got back the temple. We regained sovereignty over the holy city of Jerusalem. We repelled the Syrian Greek forces. That was the major deal. And yet, what do we celebrate? The oil. Therefore, Maimonides has a completely different understanding of Hanukkah. Rambam says, Maimonides says, right? The Hanukkah, 
is not about, is not about exclusively the oil. He says Hanukkah is about the military victory. Why is it that we also light candles on Hanukkah? It's because of the oil. Which means, when Rambam says, sorry, when the Talmud says at the end, that the, that the stage is established, the holiday for Halal and, Halal and Hodah, for, for, for Halal and Thanksgiving, he's saying, in a, he understands the Talmud to be, in addition to the obvious, they also establish it as, as a spiritual um, uh, observance. What do you, how do you commemorate a physical victory, a physical war victory? By eating physical food, right? Like the famous joke, or I don't know, the, the, the statement. They try to kill us, we won, let's eat. Let's eat, right? That's how it works. So for the, mili- for the military victory, so we have a suda, we have a feast. For the lights, we have a spiritual Thanksgiving and we have um, uh, hallow, we recite hallow, we light candles, that is for the menorah lights. That's how Maimonides understands it. The other sages understand it? No. The other sages say that the Talmud is exclusively explaining Hanukkah as about the lights, we don't celebrate, we don't commemorate the war. And that's what Halacha says, that we don't celebrate. That's how Halacha kind of uh, sides with that other opinion that says, Hanukkah is only, pretty much only about the lights and not about the war, which begs the question, what about the war? Do we celebrate any war holiday? Yes, Purim. Purim is a war, Purim is a war holiday. Purim is we defeated the enemies. How many people died in Purim? Purim is a defense. Yeah. Sure, this is also a defense. But like say, how many people died in Purim? Maybe that's why they're a little... Not Hanukkah, this is... Hanukkah, this is... Um, no, 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 no. Thousands and thousands and thousands. No, no they did it again. Two. So we're bloodthirsty people who eat after we win. I don't bloodthirsty, but no, it's, 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 these, are all, these are all defensive uh, situations. But here's the point. The question really is, the way halacha cites, that Hanukkah, there is no obligation to have a suda because we really downplay the military. So that brings me back to my original question, which is why? Why are we downplaying the military victory when that seems like the major deal? Because the minority of Jews were, uh, were fighting that war. That's okay, that's one answer. One answer is because who was fighting? It was only a minority of Jews. And most of the Jews succumbed to assimilation, et cetera, so it was not a victory, it was a loss, a net loss. Okay, that's one answer. Another answer is what Toba said, which is that we're downplaying the Chashmanoim, the Hasmonians, the Maccabees. Yeah. However, however, they also stand in infamy in Jewish history. Why? Correct. Correct. Why do they stand in infamy in Jewish history? Because they were Kohanim. Sorry, they were. Huh? He was a Kohen. And what happened later? I'm trying to now piece together. Oh, what? They, they assimilated. Or no, they became. They he did became something. That, yeah. yeah, something happened where they went, went, went corrupt or yeah, something. And so in history, there was. Again, this is the theory. The theory is that. Oh, Rabbi Yudha Nasi, some theory, he was author of the Mishnah. And he. Oh, I think they became. 
like the, not only the physical leaders, but the spiritual leaders. They put themselves in as the spiritual leaders, and that was, and there was conflict there. And so, again, there's one theory that says that the author of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yudah Nasi, who was the one that originally organized uh, Jewish thought into the various sections called the tractates, the Mesechtas, right, in, of, the, of the Mishnah that then became the Talmud. So he omitted that because he didn't want to give a lot of play to these individuals that eventually their leadership went into different areas where they shouldn't have gone, in, got, uh, gone into and also led to corruption. So there was a little bit of a downplaying of that. But I think I want to share another insight into this that um, I think also sheds some light, all puns intended, on Hanukkah overall. And that is, that Hanukkah is really about a central theme. What is the theme of Hanukkah? Hanukkah, the theme of Hanukkah is the notion of Mesirat Nefesh. What is Mesirat Nefesh? Mesirat Nefesh means self-sacrifice. Or, more precisely, the willingness to put yourself on the line for what you believe in. This is true of the war. This is also true of the oil. Let's break this down. What happened in the war? The war, as we just mentioned, there was a small minority of the Jewish people that were fighting to defend Yiddishkeit, Judaism. And they repelled the enemy, as we say in the prayers, three times a day, the addition plus in the grace after meals on Hanukkah, we say, Mesarta kiborim biyad chaloshim, v'rabim biyad ma'atim, that you, Hashem, you miraculously gave the many into the hands of the few and the mighty into the hands of the weak. We're calling ourselves few and weak. And yet, we won the military piece. Going into battle when you're outnumbered and outgunned seems like a fool's errand. It seems like you are walking yourself to the slaughter. And yet, the Chashmanoim, the Maccabees, did not let them, did not let that deter them. And they went ahead full force. Why? Mesirat Nefesh, self-sacrifice to defend our identity, to defend our religion. What happens after that victory is attained? So now you have the whole situation with the menorah, which brings up another question. And this is a question that not many people uh, realize is a question, but it's a major question. The whole story over here, they only found one flask of oil that would have lasted for one day. They lit it, it lasted for eight days. Why? Obviously the answer is, well, they needed to light the menorah and they only had one flask of pure oil. Well, did you know that there's a halacha? There's a, uh, a law in Jewish law that says that tumah hutra betzibur, that when the entire congregation is unholy, or not unholy, is um, tameh, how do you translate tameh, is uh, in a state of ritual impurity, or yeah, rich, but in this case, ritual, a state of ritual impurity, which, is, which comes at the, uh, you know, going to a battlefield and, 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 and standing over corpses and all that stuff. So when, 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 the, when the populace is in a state of ritual impurity, at that point, all bets are off. In other words, you don't have to observe the laws of ritual purity when the entire congregation is in a state of ritual impurity. Which means, in very simple terms, that there was no problem halakhically of using the impure oil for the menorah. Oh, the oil was impure. The Greeks had defiled it. They touched it. They broke the seals. Whatever. Great. But guess what? 
These are extenuating circumstances. That there's a law in Jewish law that says under extenuating circumstances, there's no problem using things that otherwise are impure. In this case, the question is, why did they look for the pure oil to begin with? Why did they pour that in? What were they doing? Hoping for a miracle? You don't need a miracle. Use whatever you have. You with me on the question? It's a fundamental question that is based on a halacha that, again, is not that well known, but the halacha is the halacha, the law is the law. And, and it raises a fundamental problem or question with the entire story, which leads us to the following conclusion. Although they were 100% permitted to light the menorah with impure oil, without any question, it wasn't any less of what they exhibited the same dedication and sacrifice. Okay, I don't mean that literally. It's not like they were putting their lives in the line to pour in this oil, but they were exhibiting the same super rational approach to the oil as they did in the military campaign. In other words, how does a person put their life on the line? How does that happen? It happens when you're not thinking in very um, linear and logical terms. Because thinking logically, a person would say, I'm not going to put my life on the line. Right? Why would I sacrifice my life? That makes no sense. Who would do that? you got, you got to be crazy to put your life on the line. Unless, unless there are certain things that are more important than intellectual calculations. When something is really important in a place beyond rationale, that's what evokes Mesirat Nefesh. Self-sacrifice and dedication. Um, I think it's Yehudit. The Hashmanian's daughter was to be married and she was to be filed by the general, which is the matchstick to all of this. So her defilement is also tantamount to like October 7th for now. Interesting. Interesting. I was also thinking about this in the context of last week's Torah portion when Dina is abducted. And her two brothers go in, and, and Yaakov says, and their father says, why'd you do that? Why'd you kill everybody? And they, they have the final word in that dialogue, and it ends with, should we allow our sister to be taken like that? So it's interesting parallels in this, these week's Torah portion, you know, where you have almost Yaakov saying, well, what about, you know, uh, you can't do collective punishment. You can't, it has to be... Um, uh, um, Jacob is saying it's got to be uh, what's the word? proportional, proportional, right? And and the sons and the and the and the and his sons, her brothers are like, yeah, not happening. And we don't find that he pushes back on that. So it's interesting. It's interesting. All he um, says is you're ruining my reputation. He didn't say you sin. But isn't that what this? Okay, uh, this is a longer discussion, which we have to save for another time. So anyway, they lit the menorah every day like the eternal light. Yes. It was a seven-branch menorah, different than our nine-branch, eight plus one. It was a seven-branch, all equal height. They lit it in the afternoon, not at nightfall. They lit it in the afternoon, and it lit, sorry, there was enough oil to last overnight to the next morning, upon which, every day, every day in the temple, it was part of the service, daily ritual, um, and it burned out in the morning. The Kohen, as part of the morning rounds, would clean out the menorah. At some point, he would refill it, Set it up, and then again in the afternoon, he would light it. And that's what our eternal light is in the 
Is that why we have the eternal light? It might be. I would have to look in, I would have to look uh, in, as to why we have that custom. Is that to commemorate the menorah? Maybe. There was, oh, interesting. You might be right. There was a, one of the, one of the uh, lamps of the menorah, it was an oil lamp, right? Oil, seven oil lamps. Uh, um, stayed lit long, remained burning longer than overnight until it came time to rekindle in the afternoon. That was like the miracle light. Always something lit, and then he put it out, or then it went out, and then it was rekindled pretty much immediately. So there was considered, there was not considered, there was one light that was, because there's two verses. One says you should light it, me'erev at boker, from evening to morning, and one says, lahalot ner tamid, to be a constant flame. Ner tamid, there you go. Lahalot ner tamid. So the commentators say, well, it was it morning, was it evening to morning, or was it constant? Uh, most of them burnt out. One of them, one of them stayed lit. The Ner Tamid, yeah. In the same way they went uh, full bore, very zealous because they were zealots, but they chose to be, um, um, have faith versus, you know, they were shutting their, their logical mind in. Correct, so yes. We're going to have a tremendous, we're going to completely trust and jump. Um, and then they found the pure oil and then they used that because they said we need this, but then they yes. also used it all. Oh, so one second. So, but let's so be. I don't know that I'm going to get to that, but I do want. There's different opinions as to how as to what they did, though. But, but either way, according to the, the opinion that they poured it all in, they went all all in. Let's just we'll just adopt that for for the for the for the sake of of today's conversation. So with the oil, and thanks for bringing me back to the point. So with the oil, the uh, the Jewish people exhibited essentially the same type of super rational approach. Doesn't make sense. You're allowed to use impure oil. Just be normal. Use the oil that you have. Stop being such an extremist, right? Just use what you have. It doesn't have to be such a big deal that you have to rely on a miracle. Who needs to rely on a miracle? Use whatever oil you have. It's fine. It's your light of the menorah after a disaster and devastation. You can use whatever you have. It's, it's extenuating circumstances. God will be fine with whatever you have. And yet, they searched and then they found, and they, and they felt that that was a further miracle. And after they found, they lit it. And again, there's different opinions. Did they split it up into eighths and then you know, only pour an eighth in? Or did they go all the way and pour it in? According to the latter opinion, they poured it all in. They went all in. And what were they relying on? They were relying on a miracle. They were going Masirat Nefesh. They were going all in in a way of super, super rational way, above logic, above rationale, without... Um, without thinking about, you know, the, the, the easy, the path of least resistance, this was going all in. And their efforts were, efforts were met by, with, uh, uh, their efforts were met with a tremendous miracle of the oil lasting for eight days. This explains another phenomenon when it comes to Hanukkah that's very unusual. Flip over the page, please. Because the Talmud, the same Talmudic uh, page, also tells us how to light the menorah. Now, this is something that I think many of us are familiar with. Oh, here we go. Tony's asking a question. If the menorah predates the first Hanukkah, then what was the purpose of the menorah before? Oh, excellent question. So the, to- the Bible, the Torah, speaks about the menorah as one of the items in the, um, in the temple. Um, essentially, it was to provide light in the temple, um, and there were various lamps throughout the temple, it says that the, that the menorah was not just to provide light inside, but the windows in that chamber where the menorah uh, was, the windows um, actually projected outward so as to project the light of the menorah 
to the outside world. It symbolized the idea of Judaism and Torah being a beacon of light to the entire world. So that was the symbolic nature of the, of the menorah. The idea of, you know, in God's temple, there was, divine, there was illumination that projected outward. The idea of, you know, the, the core of, of, of our faith is to, is to also affect, um, you know, to be a light, light unto the nations as it were. Seven, excellent. Kabbalah speaks of that. We should probably do a Kabbalah class. Kabbalah says there's seven primary, there's seven primary personality traits. Don't make me pull out my sphero chart again for the billionth time. So seven chesed. Yeah, what's a sphero? What's a what's what is that? The chesed, gevura, teferet. I have one by the way in case you chesed, gevura, teferet, netzachod yisod, malchut. Seven primary emotional traits. And so it says in Kabbalah that the menorah was, well, we know in Halacha, in Jewish law, that it, the Torah says that the menorah was hammered out of a single piece of gold. It's not like they welded different pieces together. It was, they started with a, with a block and they hammered out the candelabra from that block. And the message is that human beings have different personalities, but we're all hammered. We're all from the same spiritual DNA, right? I might approach Judaism with chesed. You might approach it with gvura. Or I might be more Netzach, you might, you might be more Hod, right? Different personalities. The point is, it's, let's not look at each other as adversaries, but complementary teammates. Hammered from the same piece of gold, from the same source, and serving the same purpose, which is to illuminate the world. So we come from the same place, we share the same purpose, right? The, the history and destiny are the same, but the way we go about it is different. I have my branch, you have your branch. Right? It's like the joke of uh, you know, the, the woman who walks into the post office this time here, and she asks for Hanukkah stamps, and they ask her, in what denomination? And she says, Oy, even the postage has different denominations. <laughs> All right, I'll take 12 conservative, <laughs> 15 orthodox. Right. That's the joke. Classic joke. All right, back, uh, back inside. Please turn the page, and I'm going to put this up as well on the, uh, on the Zoom. Okay, how to light. The Talmud continues. The Talmud continues. Now that we know that on Hanukkah we light the menorah, well, how do you light the menorah? What is a menorah? What, what's the obligation? And again, I think some of you, many of you know this, but some of you might not know this, or many of you, and, and this is a bit of an eye-opening uh, piece of Talmud. The sages taught in Abraita, the basic myths of Hanukkah. Okay, before we, there's going to be three levels of, of observing Hanukkah. The basic myths of Hanukkah is, is each day to have a light kindled by a person, the head of the household, for himself and his household. Again, according to the basic myths of Hanukkah, you would light one candle each night. Night one, one. Night two, one. Night three, one. Night four, I'm gonna, I don't, do I need to keep on going? Probably not. One each night for the whole household, not for each person. Imagine you don't need a Hanukkah Hanukkah. All you need is a candlestick, and you're good to go. One candle per night. That's it. That's the basic mitzvah. And light it from a match, or you still have to use No, you light it from a match. Yeah. Not from the shamash. Or, or. Oh, the shamash we only have because since it's a mitzvah. No, it's a good question. No, it's a very good question. No. No, you're right. No, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. You would still have to have a shamash. Why? Because the, the light, the Hanukkah light, is a mitzvah light, and you can't use it for a mundane purpose. So to make sure that we're not using that light for another purpose, we make sure to have another light that's not a mitzvah light, so that in case you're using the light, you could say it's not that light, it's that light. It's protecting ourselves from ourselves. Protecting ourselves literally from ourselves, yes. All right, second, second level. 
Mahadrin. And the Mahadrin, you know what Mahadrin is? We would call that the, um, the extremist. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Mahadrin is like, if you're really all in, if you really like, you really want to go gung-ho Judaism, right? Those who are meticulous in the performance of mitzvot, they kindle, second level, a life for each and every one in the household. So imagine you have a family of four, let's say. So night one of Hanukkah, how many lights are you lighting? Five. Four. Well, forget the shamash for a second. <laughs> No, no, no. Family of four. So let's say, yeah, let's say total four. So you would light first night four. Second night four. Good. Third night four. Fourth night four. Every night you light one per member of the household. That's it. Second level. Level one, one per night. Level two, take the number of people in your household. Divided by 12, I'm kidding, right? Take the number of people in the household, light that number of candles per night. Now, you know the expression, what is that? Is that a bird? Do we have like a bird in the house? Huh? There is chirping, right? <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time that we've had, that I've taught Kabbalah classes with birds around. Um, somehow birds are mystical, I believe. Is it a speakerphone? There you go. Well, there goes my theory. Okay, it is a burden. It's, it's, it's a mystic. It's a most, yes, there are miracles happening around us. All right, so here's the deal. Can we, do, do we canonize miracles? We don't canonize miracles. We just make holidays out of them, right? What do you mean by canonize? I don't know what that word well, is. Well, when uh, is it a, a Catholics, you know, when, when, some, when some priest does a miracle and then there's witnesses and they have to go in there, it's very political, but when they, they certify it's a miracle, then yeah. that, that person... And that person gets canonized. Oh, the person becomes, nah, we don't canonize people. (laughs) Jews, we tear each other down. We don't canonize people. It's like, that guy, I knew when he was a kid. That guy, right? That's how how we, all right, back to the story. Mahadra. on that swimming pool. Yeah, well, Mahadra Mina Mahadran. What's Mahadra Mina Mahadran? We would call that like the ultra, ultra Orthodox extremists, right? Who are even more meticulous. Adjust the number of lights daily. Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disagree as to the nature of that adjustment. Obviously, there's a dispute. But there is a, there, there's something going on here. Beit Shammai say, by the way, the word Beit Shammai, the phrase means the house of Shammai or the academy of Shammai. Shammai and Hillel were two great sages that each had their own Torah academy. So the academy of Shammai say the following. On the first day, one kindles eight lights. And from there on, gradually decreases the number of lights until on the last day of Hanukkah, he kindles one light. So imagine you have a Hanukkah. Now we need to have eight slots plus one. So now we have the candelabra that we know and love as the Hanukkah or the menorah or the Hanukkah menorah. And so on day one, you fill it up, all eight candles, plus a shamash, and you light. And, but, and then the next night, day one, so night one is eight, night two is seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. That's the Academy of Shammai. Spoiler alert, we do not do that. Beit Hillel say differently. On the first day, one kindles one light. And from there on, gradually increases the number of lights until on the last day, he kindles eight lights. Beit Hillel says the opposite. You again need an eight, uh, uh, an eight candle uh, or nine candelabrum, but you're lighting not eight down to one, one up to eight, increasing. The Talmud continues to ask, what's the rationale? Why would Beit Shammai say go down and Beit Hill say go up? And the Talmud has a dispute as to the grounds for that dispute. Two different opinions as to why those two opinions disagree with each other. Again, 
If you're wondering why Jewish lawyers, it's because for thousands of years, this is how we've been thinking, right? Analyzing and then analyzing the analysis and then questioning the analysis and questioning further. That's, that's, that's literally uh, um, the, the essence of Jewish study. But we're not going to get into that because that's going to take us too, too deep into this, into this conversation. What I want to point out is the following. What I want to point out is that the way we observe the holiday, lighting night one of Hanukkah one, night two, two, night three, three, night four, four, five, six, seven, eight, that is mehadrin min hamahadrin. That is the most orthodox, observant, extreme, ultra, whatever, whatever word you want to use, way of doing the mitzvah. There is no other area of Jewish law that everybody does the most extreme. Doesn't happen. Doesn't exist. So once, okay, fine. But there's no other mitzvah where everybody, it's become accepted Jewish practice to go the highest level. Usually, most people do the basic level and then only the extremists, as it were, do the extreme level. When it comes to Hanukkah, everybody does the extreme. I've never seen anybody. I've never seen it. Maybe I'm wrong. Or maybe I've, 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 I've missed out on life. I've never seen anybody observe Hanukkah by lighting one candle. I've never seen it. Oh, how do you, I don't have a menorah. I just have one candle. Plus one, right, with a shamash. I have one candle. I light one per night. The Talmud says it's the mitzvah. It's the basic mitzvah. But no one does it. And the reason why, right, we could play up the question longer, but the reason why no one observes the mitzvah on the basic level is because there's nothing basic about Hanukkah. Hanukkah, the whole holiday is extremists. The whole holiday is beyond normal. The Maccabees fought when it didn't make sense. Was it normal? Did it make sense? They were willing to give away, to give up their lives to fight for what they believed in. That's not rational. That's not basic. That's way beyond. The Jews, after achieving military victory, did not suffice with using the impure oil, even though that was halachic. That's kosher. It was kosher to use the defiled oil, but they didn't. They went extreme. And therefore, the way we observe the holiday, and when I say we, I mean every single person observing Hanukkah is doing it the same way. One, two, three, four, five, expanding in the light each night. Everyone does it extreme because Hanukkah at its core is a holiday of, man, this is going to sound wrong, but extremism. Not extremism in a negative way, but um, Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Beyond the logical. Beyond the rational. Beyond the normal. Huh? Magical. Magical. Going above and beyond. If we didn't go above and beyond, we wouldn't have fought against a, 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 uh, an enemy that was stronger. If we didn't go above and beyond, we would have used the normal oil. Because they didn't, we also don't. You know, it's a message in life also. You know, people react the way you model. Right, the way you, the energy that you bring into a situation is typically the, the energy that others pick up on. 
So when we're thinking about a holiday in which the actors involved in the holiday are giving it their all, how can we respond with anything else other than giving it our all? That's the whole theme of the holiday. Give it your all, even when it doesn't make sense, even when you don't have to. I don't have to light ascending candles each night. I can light one candle. Yeah, but it's nothing off your back to light a candle. I know that, but there's no other Jewish observance that everybody goes... Because they don't know any different. We've been taught, here's your menorah, buy your candles, 44 in a package. <laughs> what I'm asking... Correct, and yes, honestly, no, you are right. And honestly, until this discussion, I always downplayed Hanukkah because Purim in my family was a little more celebrated by moms from Iran. But I felt like Hanukkah is just over the top because it's so close to Christmas. And, I mean, people are like, oh my God, you're going to get all these gifts, you're going to do all this stuff. And I'm like, no, we light our candles, we have family time. I mean, Well, no, you're right about the Americanization of, or the secularization of Hanukkah, which is another conversation. But Hanukkah has been a big deal for a while, and there's never been a recorded, I don't believe I've ever recorded observance of Hanukkah, the basic. In other words, from year one, they were going all in. And the question is why. And, and again, the, this, at least the spiritual answer is because when the energy that's brought to the table is one of extraordinary or magical energy, it, everyone feeds off of that and then responds in, in uh, reciprocity in the same way. And so here is, yeah. Well, to take off from what you said, it's no big deal and it's fun to light candles. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that's what we mostly grow up with. Hanukkah is the miracle of the oil. But the real miracle isn't the candles, which is easy. The real miracle is the sacrifice that the Maccabees made. <laughs> Talk about <laughs> Mustard Nefesh. Right. I mean, they were going in and could have easily been killed. Correct. They fought on Shabbat, which brought in a whole other sure. discussion. Yeah, you, you are right. We don't grow up with that. Right. Now, just the fact that they became corrupt later, which was probably generations later, so what? You're saying that shouldn't take away from that core. It shouldn't take Good. away. And Good. And it does. And I don't understand. Good. All this is in the book of Maccabees. And I do not understand why it's not part of our... Good. It's an excellent question. Some answer, some answer, that the reason why Hanukkah is eight days instead of seven, because think about it, if the oil was anyway going to last for one day, that means there's only seven days of the miracle, not eight days. Right, it burned for eight days, but one day it was natural, seven days was miraculous, so why do we celebrate Hanukkah for eight days, just do it for seven? If you're celebrating the miracle, you only have seven miracle days. So, some people say that the first day of Hanukkah is celebrating the military victory, like Purim is one day, so Hanukkah is one day for the military victory, plus seven for the miracle of the oil. Now, the question is, do we teach that? And I would agree with you, that's not played up. We're all into the thing. Some say that the sages wanted to be sure at that time in history because it was a few hundred years before the temple's destruction. Think about it this way. The story of Purim happens in between the first and second temples. And after that story of Purim, not that many years later, the second temple was built and Jews enjoyed 420 years with the second temple. This story happens about, I don't know, a century or two before the second temple's destruction at that point, Jews are exiled, and we've been exiled for the last 1,900 plus years. And so maybe, some argue, that the sages wanted to make sure that it doesn't become um, a holiday all about um, nationalism and, and fighting for, you know, fighting 
physical wars at a time when we don't have necessarily have that luxury of fighting physical wars. We're fighting for a spiritual survival, so let's reframe the holiday or frame the holiday as being about a spiritual victory. Again, there's all these theories. But look at the situation we're in now. Correct. And that's the, so 70 years, or uh, right, or eight, right, so uh, 48, so 80, um, 75 years, that's been a very unique and new thing. Fighting in our homeland for our homeland is a novelty in Jewish history. I say novelty in Jewish history. I mean, it's a, it's a novelty of, of this last exile. It's in the last very small um, uh, piece of it. I'm not downplaying it. I'm saying that for the bulk of this 1900 years, we have needed to fought spiritually for our survival and not necessarily military wars on the ground. So the question as to why we don't play up the military stuff, I again, could be explained on pragmatic grounds. Um, again, I'm not justifying. I'm just saying it might be explained upon pragmatic grounds. It's a good question. Question that remains. Yes. Holidays, eight days. You've got um, Passover's eight days, and then yeah. this is eight days. So, so all the food we ate. Well, <laughs> also no, but eight days. So on, there's two answers, and the practical answer is, huh? That what? Correct. Right, right. So go to seven plus Simchat Torah. So you do have this idea of eight being symbolic of infinity and the same theme that we're speaking of the super rational and the supernatural seven is symbolic of nature as as uh, as symbolized by the natural order of creation god created the world in seven days of course six days plus shabbat but the cycle is seven eight represents seven plus one which is the supernatural um eight is also you turn it sideways it's infinity so even in, I don't know, math, numbers, whatever, eight is symbolic of that which goes above and beyond. So this holiday is about going above and beyond. And that takes us perfectly into the segue for today's conversation inside. I want to make sure to read this. It's a very short piece, but we're going to read it inside and, uh, and hopefully tie the pieces together of our Kabbalistic conversation and the, um, the, the Kabbalah conversation and the Hanukkah conversation. Okay, here we go. Um, I'm going to pull this up on the screen as well. Let's see where it is. Okay, oh, so I have to apologize our on, for our online um, text. I'm missing the second page that we're going to study today, but I have the first page up. So you'll have to trust me that I'm not making up the... Uh, the, the words of the second page. Okay, here we go. We're going to jump inside because our text also talks about going above and beyond. And I was thinking, you know, we don't servant and master today, I think, is a bit of a, um, the, 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 um, that construct evokes a lot of uh, mixed, mixed feelings and negative, I would say negative connotations of feelings. But I was thinking how, you know, given certainly today's, uh, what's going on today in Israel, um, we can supplant servant for soldier. I mean, just think about a soldier, if you want to think about a servant. And just to kind of re, uh, uh, reframe or contextualize this conversation, uh, this text is going through different types of relationships that we might have with God. One relationship is like a, a child to a parent, where the child loves the parent, the child thinks like the parent, the child loves what the parent loves, the child is excited to do what the parent wants the child to do, and is dedicated 
to the parents' desires even more than they're dedicated to themselves. And we've joked, oh, where are these children? Fine, now that's been the joke, but that's the paradigm is a child's love, natural love for the parent is driving that relationship and driving that type of not only affinity, but also um, uh, uh, um, uh, action. And then there's another model, and that's the model that we're, we're starting to present today, which is the servant model. And again, you can think of it as a soldier model. The idea that I'm not excited, I'm not like, it's not like, uh, um, it's not something that I'm looking to, but something that I know I have to do. And something that is very important, and therefore I'm dedicated to doing it, heart and soul, with Masira and Nefesh, with self-sacrifice. I'm dedicated to it, but it's, it's a different type of relationship. Let's continue. There is, however, another level, referred to as the dimension of servant. This dimension also exists within the souls of Israel and stems from their bodies, as in the verse, where the children of Israel are servants to me. In other words, from the soul, from our soul, we are children. From our bodies, servants. The soul is on board completely. The body needs a little bit more uh, coercion, as it were. Elbow grease to get it on board. This dimension is like the work of a servant for his master. Servitude consists of kabbalat ol, accepting a yoke, which means I am just accepting this is what I need to do, and that's it. In other words, the servant has no desire to labor and does it only because of the heavy yoke that is placed upon him out of the fear of the master, which compels him to perform difficult and very burdensome tasks, even though they are very much at variance with his strength and desire, etc. The labor weighs so heavily upon him to the point that he is short of breath and soul. Even at night, he cannot sleep and rest. He cannot rest and sleep because of this yoke. A yoke of iron compelling him to labor, sorry, because this yoke, a yoke of iron compelling him to labor, weighs down upon him such as to awaken him from his minimal amount of sleep to go work, and it does not allow him to regain his spirit at all. He's talking about a situation where this is in another context, you would never choose this. But it's almost like this has been chosen for you. This is now your calling. This is now your task. And this task is so heavy, is so important, is so is, that you can't sleep, that you wake up, and it's, you have to get back to the task, back to this thing. Now, again, in the context of servitude, I would say, this. we would all say, this is not healthy. This is horrible. Let's abolish this. I get that. He's trying to describe a paradigm where a person feels an obligation towards something. Again, it's not something they would naturally pick, all things being equal. They wouldn't say, oh, this is what I want to do. But in extenuating circumstances, that's why I'm thinking of a soldier. There are certain things that are bigger than you, certain things that are more important than your comfort, than your sleep. This is something that you know is very important, and therefore you embrace it. And yet, as he says right here, the servant, despite the hardship, the servant accepts this labor because of the master's yoke. Even though the labor goes against his desire, it becomes second nature to him to carry this yoke and load, this great burden of difficult labor. Again, we're now out on the, uh, on the, on the online version, uh, so you'll, I'll, I'll just pu pull my picture up. Just as the bull becomes accustomed to the yoke and the donkey to the load. And this submission is acquired by the servant like second nature, literally. In other words, it becomes like Teva, becomes nature, it becomes like second nature. It becomes habit and becomes, the servant becomes accustomed to this. All of this is because by submitting himself as a servant, that he gives away himself as a servant, he becomes nullified to the core as if he were not an independent being at all. 
and his entire purpose in the world is only to work for and serve his master. He is considered like the property and acquisition of his master, literally. And he therefore accepts upon himself all types of most difficult and strenuous tasks and does not question it at all. For so it should be in Yiddish, that's exactly how it should be. For this is, um, in the Yiddish, what does it say? Uh, that's the way it needs to be. For this is his entire being and purpose, only work and service. And therefore, it is literally like second nature to him to carry the yoke and the load, etc. Now, such a servant certainly has no joy or personal pleasure at all in his work with a harsh yoke such as this. Nevertheless, the fact that his master's will is fulfilled as a result of all the trouble of his work, that is, this is his entire vitality and being. For it is for this that he was created and formed, and he has nothing independent of this. For he, has not, for he has no place nor independent being at all, since he is pierced, and his soul, body, and all that is his is acquired by his master, such that even when he acquires or finds or gains, all belongs to his master, as is known. Now, again, this sounds very harsh, but I was thinking in the context of Hanukkah, obviously, that's the way we started this conversation, the context of the Maccabees, these are individuals who they were not in it for themselves or for personal glory. They were not in it for personal gain. This is not something that they were excited about doing, but something that they felt that they had to do. Those are two different realities. It's not like, oh, I want to be a Maccabee one day. No, it's, there's, a, there's a situation happening. There's a very, there, there are values that I have in my life, my spiritual values, and therefore I must do this. I feel like I have to do this. And in that moment of submission, of I'm giving myself over to a greater cause, to a master that's beyond myself, at that point, there is that bittle, that nullification. That it doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter my fate. Because what only matters, the only thing that matters is my task and my mission and getting this done. And that's what we mean by Mesirat Nefesh giving up one's soul. It doesn't only mean giving up one's life, it means mesirat haratzon, giving up one's will, submitting, submission, submitting one's will to a higher authority. It means that I'm no longer living my life for myself. I'm no longer living my personal life where I wake up in the morning and I do what I want. I am now living my life completely focused on a higher mission, a higher task, a higher calling, a higher will. That is my entirety, the entirety of my life and my focus. This is the way he describes the servant persona. This is the way we can imagine the Maccabee persona to be. This is what drove them to light the menorah, the temple menorah, with light that could only last for one day. Because that is the divine will. Even when the divine will says that you could use impure oil at that point, we are, it's in a state where we're not thinking about self, not thinking about loopholes or ways to get out or, way, or the easy way out. This is going all in, dedicated to the greater task. So in the final analysis, what we've learned today is that there are really two forms, you know, building off of what we discussed in the previous sessions, there's two primary forms of divine service, like a Ben or like an Ever like a child or like a servant. The child form of divine service is, you love it. You're excited about it. I can't wait to do it. God wants it and I love it and I'm excited. I, I want to do it. And there's certain mitzvot that I would imagine you are a child in that relationship. 
There are certain mitzvot where I imagine you're excited about doing it. And maybe it's Hanukkah. Maybe you love Hanukkah. Or maybe you love another holiday or another mitzvah. You can't wait to do it. You feel excited about it. You know it's what God wants also, but you're personally excited about it. But then I would venture to say there's some mitzvot that you're like the servant. Hopefully, right? Where you wouldn't have chosen this. It doesn't make sense to you. You're not really that, uh, naturally, you're not really that interested in it. But you know that this is the divine will. And like a soldier, you show up and you do it. And you do it because it's not about you. You're surrendering to a higher authority. You're surrendering to the, um, the, the, what's the general called? What's the highest general called? Commander-in-chief. Or not. Admirals. Admiral, whatever. You're surrendering to the top. And if, right, and if God says, right, if God says, I want this, the child says, yes, I'm excited. The servant says, the soldier says, yes, I'll do it. Put, pushing away personal desires, pushing away personal comfort, and saying, this is what's needed of me. This is important. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to surrender, submit to a higher authority, and I'm going to do what needs to be done. Yeah, you know what? We would all love to be in that childlike relationship in all of our responsibilities in life. Wouldn't we all love to love the things that we need to do? That would be amazing. Imagine all of our responsibilities, going to work, right? Parenting, relationships, spirituality. Imagine if you loved every part of your life. But we know that life is not simple. We know that in life, there are certain things that you love, certain things that you don't in the moment love, and yet must get done. Why? Because they must. And, and being a servant means that you have the ability to do something out of your immediate comfort zone because you know it must get done. That's what a servant is. As important as it is to exercise the son persona, the child persona, it's equally, if not more important, to exercise the servant persona. When I read it, I know it sounded extreme and harsh. I know it. I try to start off with the Maccabees. We, right, the whole opening was about the Maccabees. So at least we know we're not the only extremists here. right? They were also extremists. And we also observe the holiday in extreme fashion to this very day by lighting, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. But here's the big idea. The big idea is that in life, and everyone knows this, there are certain days that you wake up excited about your responsibilities and other days you wake up and you're not so excited. And the test of life is, right? The core of life is not how you perform when you're excited to perform. But how do you perform when you're not so excited to perform? That's the difference between good and great. It's easy, right? It's easy to be kind when you feel kind. It's much harder to be kind when you feel like you're in a lousy mood. If you can step up and do it then, that is spectacular. That's what it means to go above and beyond, to be a servant, to be a soldier, to be dedicated to the mission. Would it be great to love everything all the time, to love our, yes. Is that realistic? I'm going to posit no. For most of us, the answer is no. And yet, if we can show up with our best foot forward, you know, putting our best foot forward in every situation, even those we're not so excited about, that, that truly defines an extraordinary character. Someone who is not just limited 
to their own immediate mood, but someone who also has the ability to surrender to the moment and to be present when the need arises. And so this is my message and my blessing for all of us for this Hanukkah. Let us take the Mesirat Nefesh, the self-sacrifice, the dedication, the surrender of the Maccabees. Right, Tobo? We're reclaiming the Maccabees today. I'm only doing this to make you happy. I'm kidding. <laughs> taking, taking, <laughs> also the Maccabees. Right? Taking the, the dedication of the Maccabees and ingraining that in our own lives. How can I in my life be a little bit more dedicated to something that I'm not so excited naturally to do, but I know is the right thing to do. That's a very long meditation and sentence, but I, th- I hope it makes sense. So my blessing for all of us is to love the things that we love, to do the things that we must do, and to not let our own seichel, our own rationale, get in the way of what is right. Thank you for joining me for this special Hanukkah edition of Kabbalah Cafe. Wishing all of us blessings of light and joy and peace, and good health, and healing. Amen. Let us say, Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Isn't, Thank you. Rabbi, isn't lighting the candles, isn't um, celebrating the miracle of the eight days, of, just the eight days of, of life, isn't that also celebrating um, and paying respect to the people that actually lit that candle with the faith that it could last? Yes. Yes, that's a great point. We are. Right. Tell your neighbor. It's not it's a good idea. I like that idea. All right, good. The main thing was their their faith. Like do we really talk about their faith the faith of the Maccabee? We do. We do. We do in, in the in the Valenison prayer. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. In the Valenison prayer we mention the military stuff. But when lighting the menorah, there's no mention of that. But not the military stuff. Their courage. You're saying their courage. Yeah. Yeah. You can't have a miracle if you don't fight. Right. If you don't show up, miracles aren't going to happen. Like entering into that fray, that, that might be the biggest miracle. Of a person saying, you know what, it doesn't make sense. I'm going to do it anyway. And that's really the takeaway message. Are we only willing to do the things that we've made sense of, that, oh, this makes sense so I can do it? Or are we willing to do the things that we don't necessarily have an exit plan, but we know has to get done? We don't know how it's going to end, but we got we to gotta get it. And I think that's the idea. The point of today's class, really, to me, the message I try to convey, hopefully it came out, is to stretch ourselves a little bit. The ability, because being a child of God, as a word, that persona is, you're very comfortable. Which there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. We should always be, you know, halavai, we should be comfortable. But the servant persona is someone who is able to stretch outside their comfort zone and say, you know what, this is not so comfortable, but I know it's right, so I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to, I'm going to not be limited by, see you guys, not be limited by my comfort and break outside of that. Why? Because this is, this is what's needed or this is what's right. That's a powerful thing for a human being to, to be able to have that surrender. It sound, again, it sounds, when, we, when I read this, I'm, I, I feel, I hear the cringe. I hear the, ugh. like, are we really, like this? You're not reading the next chapter. Like a servant. servant. Well, no, that's another, that's another persona. We have the third persona. It's, but, but I'm saying is in, 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 the, in the modern Western mind, you know, American mind, this servant, oof. No way. no way. Horrible. Someone called the authorities. Someone is, is submitting to someone. 
What is this? Who does that? It's horrible. It make me feel good. Right? Yeah, it's about me. I have to feel good about this. What do you mean? You know how much therapy I'm going to need from being a servant? This is going to be terrible. How am I going to, re- how am I going to recover from this? Sounds like abuse. Good. Or you can say, abuse. First of all, no one's, for- well, I would say no one's forcing the servant. I think he did say that. But the, the point, the po- <laughs> except, no, but even then, is God really forcing? I mean, when was the last time God put a gun to our heads? Right? It's not happening. The point is that a person is recognizing a higher authority and saying, I am ready to surrender my own, you know, comfort zone, my own whatever I'm excited about today or I'm not excited about today. I'm going to do what needs to be done. And I think, again, that's what differentiates, certainly in relationships, between good and great, right? It's easy to be kind when you feel kind. It's easy to be nice when you feel nice. It's easy to be, to be, to be happy when you feel happy. But it's harder to do that even if you don't. That's the key. So, Rabbi, I have a question. Hold on one second. Yeah, yeah. You get to feel angry. You know you're doing the right thing, but you are making a sacrifice. Correct. Correct. It's okay to feel yes. bad about what you're losing. It's okay. You know you're doing the right thing. Correct. It's okay to feel the tension. I'm going to re- just reword that a little bit. It's okay to feel the tension. The tension reminds us that we're servants. We're not sons in this area. There are plenty of mitzvahs, let's speak spiritually, or Jewishly. There are plenty of mitzvahs that we're excited to do, no problem. Again, lighting the Hanukkah menorah, someone said this, it's easy to do. Who doesn't like lighting candles or lights? I'm with you. In that area, if that's you, then you're a child of God in that area where you're excited about what, what the parent wants to do. Great. And then there's some mitzvahs, some mitzvot, maybe lighting candles Friday night before sundown, or maybe wrapping tefillin in the morning, whatever the mitzvah is. I'm going for like the two like most famous ones, but whatever that mitzvah is, there might be mitzvot that are way more difficult. To do that one, you will feel the burn. The burn means the tension, and that means that you're, that you're giving up for this. It means that in that area, it's a servant. It's a powerful thing. You know, I, I've said this before. I didn't mention it today. But when it comes to parenting, there's a, there's a, you know, different techniques. But one technique is to acknowledge the difficulty for the child. Let's say you tell a child, you know, about certain behavior. One way is to acknowledge the challenge of doing that behavior and saying, I know you would like to do X, Y, and Z, but this is the right thing to do. And I know that you have the ability to do the right thing, even though you don't want to do it. And that's really what, that's really the acknowledgement. It's not saying that you should love doing it because not in every area will you always love that. It's powerful to know that you could not love it and still do it anyway. That's powerful to know that you can transcend your personal, Dr. Maxi. So my question is, is how do you have the discernment to know, say in Kabbalistic terms, when you should be more toward Kesed versus Gavura. In other words, um, maybe I need to be setting a limit as opposed to being almost boundarylessness right. uh, present with kindness. I mean, when do you set a limit? When do you not? How do you develop that discernment so that you know that you are doing that right thing and you are sacrificing for the right reason and not sacrificing for some other reason that maybe at the end of the day, really wasn't a sacrifice you should have been making. Excellent or the question. Or the other way around, the kindness sure. that you gave that you shouldn't have given. Yes, excellent question. 
That's a very difficult question. Right? How do we know when we are surrendering to something higher versus kind of um, following maybe a path of least resistance? Takes me back to what I think we, uh, we discussed last week about Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai, who on his deathbed said, I'm not sure which direction I'm going to go. Right? Am I going to go to heaven or the opposite? And we asked the question, how could he not know where he's going to go? He was like the greatest of the greats. How did, he, how did he not know? And so I gave one answer then that said he wasn't sure if when he served God, if he was really serving God or serving himself. In other words, was he following the path of least resistance for him personally? And that happened to align with some good stuff, but it was really about him as opposed to the larger picture. And I think you're asking a very, hard, a very good question that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, and it may only be possible to answer within oneself, um, which presents another challenge. Is how, do, how do we know that we're not stuck in ourselves? And, but it's very hard for, I think, to answer that question you know, purely objectively. And kind of there's, I don't know that there's a rule of thumb to answer that question. I think it's all context-based. And the, the individual themselves is usually the most primed to, to know that or to figure that out or to, you know, for lack of a better term, to prey on that. And to try to get some, you know, divine guidance as to what is the right moda- what is the right path of service, a chesed approach or a gvur approach right now in my life. Like, is this now a time for chesed or gvura or netzach or hod or whatever it is? Which is the service and which is the servant of the service of, or the avoda of a child, the avoda of a servant, right? Am I to follow my natural inclination or am I to surrender my natural inclination because there's a greater will over here. And that, you know, we're kind of laying out different paths, but a specific path in a specific context is going to be obviously. Now, and and you know what it sounds like I'm saying. What it sounds like I'm saying is, well, these are, this is all in theory. In practice, who knows? But what I, what I am saying is that in practice, it requires some, you know, some specific analysis. And it's, I guess it's, I would say it's always good just following you know, the advice of the Hasidic masters to, uh, to have an outside party, an objective party to consult with on specifics, you know, and, and as to a path of avoda. But in general, we, I think, you know, based on the proximity of these conversations in this text that we're studying, you know, first it mentions the child, then it mentions the servant. You know, usually, if, if it's about positivity, then if, 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 if it's positive, if it's a positive, positive experience, that's a holy experience. If... You know, secondarily, the second option, which is the, the idea of breaking oneself and surrendering to a higher authority to do something outside one's comfort zone, that is certainly a, a valid path and certainly a necessary path, which I think in the proximity here would be a second path in divine service. But again, how that, how that ranks specifically would be, would be a harder question to, to answer, um, you know, as a general rule. Um, hope that makes sense. Thank you. Sure. Until what? I don't think you know till it's over. Right. When you get to step back and see. So So maybe in retrospect to look, to have some clarity in retrospect. Right. Which, which is good in retrospect, but not necessarily good when going through, you know. All right. Yeah. It's harder. Right. It's harder to, to find it. But I think in general, it's good to know that we have, like today's, today's point, we, to know that we do have the ability to override our, you know, our more self-oriented sensibilities and to go above and beyond. But 
but you also take um, along the way other people will say things to you and pat you on the back for doing what you're doing which helps you continue on that. you're saying the feedback that you get helps you be that servant be that soldier on the way yeah correct a good way to, to be that zealot get to that zealot mindset where you're getting out of your conscious thought because really if we try to have, solve problems with with uh intellectual problems with thoughts we're just we're just circling, recircling. Spinning wheels. Yeah, we're just spinning. So I think when we, when the miracle happens, in my personal opinion, it's when I get out of my thought and just go, just trust. Mm. And do, and just stop fighting everything and just move forward to where I'm being pulled. And then I uh, equate that to, um, you know, if you're ever, uh, you jump off a high, a high dive or off a cliff and it looks really scary because it is. And, uh, the only way to jump is to turn off your brain. And it's kind of crazy because you're feeling like I'm actually doing something crazy. But when you turn off your brain, you can count to one, two, three, jump, and say, I'm just going to jump and just let my body... That's it, and that's probably, the, that's probably a very practical example. Right, I don't know if you guys can hear online, but Yaakov is saying that, you know, if you're on a high cliff or uh, diving, and, 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 you know, it's time to jump, you, can't, you think. can't think. You have to just say one, two, three, jump. And, and, and that's, you know, that would have been, that's a perfect example of, of what the servant persona is. I, I'm stuck in my head. I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not so excited about it. One, two, three, jump. That's it. I know I, know I need to jump. I'm just going to jump. Is that surrender? Yeah. Is that necessary sometimes? Absolutely. All right. We'll close it out because I know people have to go. Uh, Dr. Maxi, good to see you. Thank you for the sponsorship. Special dedication. Mariana, great to see you. I saw you before and it's great to have you here class on Hanukkah, and Fran, and Drawer, perhaps, as well. Good to see you guys live from Vegas. <laughs> we call Vegas Mitzvah City. I know other people have different names for it. We call it Mitzvah City. Mitzvah City. So many, uh, so many opportunities. <laughs> I, you know, I officiated a wedding in Vegas. I went dressed up as Elvis. Okay. But I did officiate a wedding in a casino. Uh, hotel with a racetrack in the basement. <laughs> yeah, it had this casino hotel had an actual indoor no horses. It had a horse racing racetrack. Oh, I said racetrack. Right, it could be cars. No, no, a horse racing track in the uh, in the in the in the in the lowest floor. Actually, it was Marnine's kid. Um, Anyway, I ended off. I ended off the chuppah by saying, "And now we'll ask our chatan, our groom, to break the glass." I said just one thing: don't step on my blue suede shoes. <laughs> that was literally how I concluded the. Uh, I could not help myself. I could not help myself. You were Elvis. I no, but I just I did that line. I no, I threw I threw in a few lines in the chuppah. Yeah, absolutely. But that was like the last. The final word before I was done. I was definitely going to make an Elvis reference. All right, we'll see you guys. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. See you guys. Record. Shavuot Tov, Hanukkah Sameach.